Welcome to our podcast on industrial robotics applications and warehousing and distribution. I'm Eugene Dimitri, Editorial Director of Robotics 24-7. Joining me today are Nick Longworth, Senior Systems Application Engineer, and Bruce Muir, Director of Distribution Automation at SIC. Welcome, gentlemen. Can you talk a little bit about what each of you does at SIC? Uh, let me start with you, Bruce. All right, thanks. Appreciate it, Eugene. Uh, my name is Bruce Muir. I come to you with uh, 32 years of experience in the material handling industry. Uh, joined right out of college from NC State. Uh, I've worked at uh, major automation integrators throughout my career. I've been self-employed several times. Been in the airport industry, and I served as a, as a in the retail industry as a capital equipment deployment manager. Uh, most recently, I've been with SIC for about eight years now. I'm, I'm a sales leader. Uh, I run sales teams that call on automation integrators in the logistics environment, as well as uh, all the retailers and airports in the country. Right, and Nick? Yeah, I've, um, so I'm Nick Longworth. Uh, I am a senior application engineer with SIC. I've been with SIC for about four years, focused mainly our, on our industrial robotics technologies, whether it's robot guidance, again, do a little bit of safety. We can talk about um, a lot of other sensor technology and how it relates to industrial robots. Um, prior to SIC, I was an end user for about 10 years. Uh, I designed, built, and uh, maintained anything from a welding uh, assembly machine, machine tending, distribution, depalletization, really any type of robotic system. Um, so a lot of experience with these types of applications and kind of what we'll be talking about today. Right. And let's get into our, our conversation here. I know we're talking about industrial robots and warehouses. And most people, when they hear robots and warehouses, they're thinking of autonomous mobile robots or AMRs or automated guided vehicles, AGVs. But we're really talking about industrial. Can you clarify or explain what you mean by that? Um, sure, I'll, I'll get started. I think it's a... Uh, what you say is is very is very common in the industry. I think uh, when people talk about robotics in the, in the logistics field now, your mind immediately goes to autonomous mobile robots. Uh, you know, essentially smart AGVs that are being used to deploy all over warehousing industries right now. I think I think more than a billion lines of picking has been supported now by autonomous mobile robotics kind of taking that space where the large pick module used to sit in warehousing environments. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's more making people more efficient in automating the, uh, the non-value added process of walking and things like that in the warehousing environment. That's not what we're talking about in this particular case, though. That's a, a, a great field of study and conversation to have. We're talking here more industrial robotics that would actually take the place of people, palletizing, picking, things like that. Nick has a lot more information about that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and how I typically uh, differentiate between different types of robots is the kinematic model. And when I say kinematic, it, it has to do with how the robot measures its position in space um, and how it understands, say, from my zero point here and what I, whatever I'm doing up here, how do, I, how do I calculate where that is relative to that? And different types of robots have different mathematics and they're drastically different mathematics uh, in, in terms of how they're gonna track themselves. So 
typically when you start looking at those calculations, there becomes a very clear differentiator when it comes to technology that can integrate with those robots uh, based on those kinematic equations. So when you look at those equations, uh, articulated arm, something like, you know, a FANUC or a KUKA or something like that, that you would see that's an actual arm that's going to move around and do pick in place or welding or something like that. That's one type of robot and it's called articulated. You might see another type would be AGVs, like you've mentioned, drones, um, legged. Those are all drastically different models in terms of how they work. So what we'll be talking about today is more articulated, maybe a little bit of gantry, but mostly articulated robots we'd probably be getting into. Yeah, and there's, you know, Delta and Scara robots and, and all other kinds of interesting systems that, you know, people are, are right now thinking a lot about humanoids, but there's plenty of other types of robots that are doing real work right now. Yeah. Speaking of that, can, can you guys give some examples of some common applications that industrial robots are doing in warehousing and logistics? You mentioned taking place operations and palletizing, but can you go a little bit more into that? Bruce? Certainly. So uh, I think when we walk through the warehousing environment, we look for collections of, of people that are, that are doing work and then identify any repetitive or potentially ergonomically unfriendly tasks that could be uh, performed by, uh, by, by a fixed robot. Uh, the, uh, I think we did talk about, about AMRs and, uh, you know, people are mounting uh, robotic arms to AMRs today, and uh, and trying to to figure out that process of uh, of of picking on on top of a, where where the where the uh, the AMR would actually go to the storage location and pick product off the shelf. Likewise, we can have totes of of product move underneath into a picking area where a fixed robotic arm does does picking out of a tote. But I think the biggest places that we see the opportunities for ergonomics, as well as uh, offsetting collections of of, of large uh, of pools of labor, are you know I think truck loading and unloading is a big thing right now, especially when we move to a uh, to a more aggressive OSHA stance on what's uh, what's acceptable or not based based upon lifting standards and 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 how to keep people safe, as as well as just the uh, the difficulty of finding people to do that kind of work and the uh, and the more than 100% turnover that, that exists in those sorts of, uh, of tasks. When there is sortation, especially item sortation in a, uh, in a distribution operation, things like tilt trace orders or, uh, or a bomb base orders or cross belt sorters, there is the loading of those sorters that is, uh, that is a very, that is very uh, labor intensive process. We're, whether whether a uh, an AMR or a conveyor system delivers a delivers a full tote full of a bunch of mixed product and a uh, and a robot is has a task of removing each of those items and putting them onto the sorter, or whether it it brings in a uh, that same infrastructure may bring in a tote of all the same items in there, say T-shirts in a bag or something like that, and then and we have to pick a finite number out of the tote and return. The unused quantity back to the storage feature. That's a that's another good use case. Uh, palletizing and depalletizing is a fantastic one. When we we look at at, at the inbound automation and outbound automation uh, in the distribution center, and the uh, that has both both labor intensity and ergonomics involved. 
and uh, and we're seeing more and more applications of belt picking as well. Things where, in, especially in the Courier Express and parcel industry, I know all of the major players in that industry are uh, are rushing to find find fixed robotic solutions to pick and sort. Yeah, and um, I think a lot of what you're you're discussing there really boils down to a couple of factors. One is ergonomics. Do you have good or bad ergonomics in the in the application? And that's a common theme throughout a lot of different industries, not just uh, logistics and warehousing. Um, is is uh, using a robot because these things are big, heavy, and they could hurt people. Um, so that's a common thing. Throughput is another big piece. Is can you get people? Can the people actually do this fast enough for what you're doing, or will a robot be a better option? And really, the the opening here is is the technology. You know, what uh, what technology are we able to apply, and is it able to make that robot flexible enough to do these applications? Because unlike something like in a in a factory where you're doing the same thing day in and day out you need a much more flexibility in a warehouse in terms of what you're going to see and the type of things that you have to pick so i think a lot of what what bruce just mentioned does go back to those two factors of uh, ergonomics and throughput i'm not sure if you would add any others to that bruce you know i, I was it was just occurred to me when you talked about flexibility i, I can't think of a much more uh requirement of flexibility than uh than 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 unloading and loading of trucks. I think most of the major integrators uh, or, or manufacturing of, uh, of traditional logistics operations have, uh, have, have, have had a varying different types of, uh, of designs of equipment to load and unload. And I think there's there some really great ideas, especially as it relates to the mechanical idea of getting in and out of trucks and what kind of conveyance might be attached to that. But the but you know what what we get involved with and what Nick's biggest expertise is is in the perception of of what the the robot sees when it when it looks at that wall of boxes and decide what to pick and and what to grasp and how to grasp it to me that's one of the most fascinating developments that that we've had so far especially in, as it relates to flexibility think about that Nick. Yeah, I think that really, it, it's a good point because it's what has really opened up these applications. You didn't see a lot of robots other than AMRs in warehouses for a very long period of time because you have so much variation in what you're trying to pick or interact with. It's not something, again, where you're dealing with this single widget day in and day out and all you have to do is pick that widget. If you were to try and do it the ways that you see in automotive or the way you see in, in metal and machinery, you're going to have a very high fixed cost in order to work with anything. So those ways of perceiving items and being able to guide the robot to go pick those items, those are newer. And those have really enabled these applications to be able to be solved because now we can, you know, a poly bag, a clear poly bag with some, a shirt in it comes down the, the conveyor. We need to pick that. Well, the next thing's a box. And the next thing after that is, is who knows what, uh, it could be a, a mailer or a bag, another bag or anything like that. And we have to be able to image and recognize and guide to all of these things within pretty much just like that. It, it cannot be slow, it needs to be dynamic and you gotta be able to do it. So there's a lot that go, has gone into it from a technology standpoint that has really enabled these applications now um, in that regard. Just gonna say, what types of technologies, uh, Nick, like I think about uh, the applications I've brought to you to solve in the past, things like uh, 
like like shirts in a clear bag where uh, where typical vision two-dimensional vision might not be able to solve that what other types of technologies are you able to bring to bear to uh, yeah so your applications you're dealing with um again traditional 2d vision not not going to do something like that because traditional 2d vision you're dealing with uh trying to generate contrast and then using a shape matcher and so again going back to a bag you're talking about a flexible item that can look like any shape it doesn't really matter pick a shape it looks like a cloud so it's something where deep learning has come in and hasn't really enabled us to do segmentation that way where it really understands similar to our eyes what what is what but in addition to that you've got into 3d vision where you have some higher speed 3d cameras now that can give us with in combination with that deep learning we can all of a sudden you know create a point cloud that now we can get full 3d positioning and the robot can just go snatch this thing from wherever we want it's not nearly as limited as it used to be in the past and again that's what's really opened up things like depalletizing truck at loading unloading uh, induction which is basically a, a you know you can almost look at induction as a bin picking operation in a lot of cases um, those kind of things are now opened up because you have that technology available and in a state where it's it's capable of this type of application one more thing here uh eugene that i'm i'm, I'm pretty fascinated by and that is, you know, so far we've talked a lot about the picking of products. So we pick product out of a tote, we set it on a conveyor. Uh, we pick product off of a belt, we set it on a conveyor. Uh, we pick product out of a truck and we put it on a conveyor. And and uh, and we pick product off of a pallet and do something with it. The the palletizing, mixed case palletizing, and uh, and mixed case uh, lo truck loading, I think is is pretty fascinating too. Because, uh, because of course, what Nick is saying, we can certainly perceive all of those things. But, but what about, but what about the calculation and like the things that people are really good at doing is figuring out how a a, a field of boxes in front of me fits well and and organized on a pallet and and maybe in a truck. How do we? Uh, is it is it deep learning is, or, or or AI or something like that that helps us? Uh, helps us solve those applications where we actually have to put the puzzle pieces together. So that, that's something that more just requires prior knowledge. So I don't know if I'd say deep learning is always necessary in those, maybe in some cases, but there are a lot of rule-based systems already out there uh, from different robot manufacturers to do that Tetrising work. And the main thing is they have to know what's coming down the line. And so you got, you know, we have other technologies on those conveyors. You mentioned those conveyors that are tracking what is there and what's coming down to that robot and knowing what's coming the robot can do a lot of calculations in terms of how that best fits up to to maximize space lots of things like that in terms of a dynamic palletizing a, dyna a dynamic loading that kind of stuff that uh it, it's been available actually for a while but again the the opening here has been really the ability to start implementing these in warehousing environments with good ROI and that kind of stuff to have those technologies that are enabling that that side of the process to make it worthwhile. Those are all excellent points. And you've been talking about you know, obviously the technologies to uh, recognize and, and ultimately to enable the robots to manipulate the items. But can you talk for a moment about how the distribution center environment 
has maybe different perception constraints and requirements than say a factory environment, right? Where, you know, you may still need perception to handle items coming down the line, but uh, I think you were alluding to a certain amount of predictability versus variability. Can you talk about just the constraints or, or things that are different in this warehouse and distribution space that we are now applying these industrial robots and sensing systems to? Yeah, and so you're exactly right. You know, in a, in a factory, let's say you're working on a laser cutter, you're working on a CNC machine or an assembly line. The thing that the robot is doing is the same day in and day out or maybe changes, you know, slightly. Maybe you start making a different part, but it's a similar line of part, maybe just a different size or a different thread or something like that. But the tooling that that robot has and the uh the the fixturing that you can put the parts in that can all remain the same um that makes you know the automation process not need perception it doesn't need to have a vision system to tell it where things are because they can be fixtured up and held in a, a known location and an operator just throws them in there and throws i don't know a couple hundred on a on a rack and while the robot goes and runs the rest of the day, you know, things like that are capable in a, in a factory because you are doing the same thing day in and day out. And it's, I wouldn't say it's cheap, but it's, it's cost effective is probably the way to put that you're able to do that kind of thing versus those traditional methods that you see in factories with high repeatability. They have low mix, high volume. That's, that's kind of the, the term here. We're going low mix, high volume those techniques of using fixtures and stuff like that, it would not be a cost effective in a warehouse where you have, you know, 10 things on a conveyor and they're radically different things. Um, and you wouldn't be able to use the same shape matcher or the same uh, fixture or anything like that to be able to figure out where these are for the robot to go pick them. Um, so and the, the other thing I do always mention here when it comes to vision is the robot's not the, the camera is not the only piece of this, the perception. It's the other piece is the robot program and the tool. The tool has to be able to pick what you're trying to see. Um, and that's another big piece of these sort of things becoming a, a, an application in the warehouse is having some investment into different types of soft tools that are able to kind of form to what you're picking um, rather than having a rigid tool, which a robot is typically a very rigid machine. It's a bunch of metal and motors. Um, and same with the tools, they are traditionally pneumatic based or there's some electric ones, but they typically don't have a whole lot of give. They like to go here and here. So it, it, a, lot of, uh, a lot of technology that's come out from a picking standpoint is now more flexible where you can kind of see it grab around things or maybe the suction cups have advanced to a state where you don't necessarily have to have something on every suction cup in order to create suction. Things like that have also enabled this, uh, this field in, in the warehouse because you can got to be able to pick what you see as well. And, and to follow up on that, uh, what sorts of enabling technologies, you mentioned obviously some of the improvements in, in grasping, but even in, in perception and then the vision processing like GPUs, what kind of enabling technologies are you seeing that are evolving or developing to aid industrial robots in these environments? 
Yeah, so with 3D vision, you know, you've had 3D vision for, for years. Um, it's something that, you know, you can create a point cloud. And I, I know of point cloud-based systems from the early 2000s. Um, but the issue is how do you process that point cloud? I think that's where you're going is, you know, what has changed in the past five years, let's say, that has made this something that we can now do that we couldn't do before. And generally what's changed is the ability to process um, and, and process quickly. And the biggest adder to that has been GPU acceleration. Uh, so graphics processing units. And that's a lot of times what your, your computer is using to use to do rendering or doing your displays. But essentially what it is, is there's a computer chip in there with a ton of cores. It has a ton of little brains, essentially little decision makers. And when I say a ton, you're talking about thousands. And it, the PCs can now leverage those. It can take a deep learning process or a point cloud generation process, and it can place it into that GPU with all those little decision makers and have that done very quickly. Versus in the past, um, you were relying on a standard CPU in a, in a PC, which only has you know normally eight, maybe 12 decision makers. They're very fast decision makers, but you only have so many. When, and when you can do a parallel process like point clouds or deep learning, having a lot more decision makers really makes it a lot faster. So that GPU has been a huge addition to this type of technology. Um, it's, it's worth noting some history that deep learning, the, the idea of it has been around since the 1940s, Perceptron was a, a textbook method of deep learning in the 1940s. It's just every time you see deep learning come up throughout history, what happened was it never made it to mainstream because it was never, there was never the technology to really bring it in and be useful until maybe you know 80s, 90s, where you see the airlines starting to, uh, to mess with our pricing based on our, our buying habits and stuff like that. that. That was a deep learning algorithm. But then, you know, in, in production, you need a much higher processing level than, say, a, an algorithm that tells you how to price a ticket for an airline. And so it took until now to really get that GPU acceleration and something that we can really use in the field and, and have strong results for an application because of it. Um, Bruce, I don't know if you see anything else. I know that was a, a bit of a tangent on technology there. No, I think it's it's important. You know, the cost models associated with uh, with with the distribution. Uh, I've been in this industry for a long time, and uh, for the first I don't know twenty five years of my career, we were trying to offset you know relatively inexpensive labor in in warehousing, and that's and that's kind of where where real automation always got stuck. You know, we always were we were doing mechanization, we weren't doing automation. We were uh, we were putting conveyors in to eliminate walking in order to make people more efficient. Now we're talking about actually replacing people from time to time with, with robots. And the, the, the big thing that makes that, that happen now are the, the cost models associated with it. The uh, inflation, inflation is driving wages, but, but also the, I think, what do they call it? The great layoff or the, the great resignation we've, uh, we've seen yeah. great resignation. Sorry. We've seen so many people leave the the uh, the warehousing uh, pool of potential labor that now instead of just offsetting labor, now we're looking at uh, 
of retailers out there that just can't fill their warehouses with people to do things. And uh, that drives an, a completely different cost model than having to hire too many people. So, so that's where the, the how the industry is driving to automation over, you know, what we just considered mechanization in the past. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely a key, put those two pieces together. And that's why you're seeing adoption mm -hmm. all of a sudden. And one of the things I think it, it's worth mentioning again, because we're, we, you made that comparison, uh, Eugene, to, to factory automation and where robots are currently highly adopted. You know, we sell 40,000 new robots in the US per year. It's not like we are just getting into art, articulated arms and traditional robotics um, or industrial robotics. The, the first one was installed in 1961. So it's, it's been a long time and there's been a lot of adoption in this industry, but why has it not ended up in warehouses? So that technology piece I mentioned is P as a part of it, but also what Bruce mentioned about, you know, the cost models associated with how do you replace somebody is a big piece as well. And you go back to, again, a factory, you, you pay people, you know, uh, on a job, you're $24, $30 an hour versus a warehouse is what 14 15 worse something like that and about so, right yeah so the roi that you look at that that return on investment in a warehouse has always been you know significantly lower you're talking about half the wage versus you know any other benefits where you see you know a union in in a, a factory getting probably higher end benefits and you get lower benefits in a warehouse that kind of stuff all that factors into roi and really affects that cost model that you might see in, in a warehouse where it might not make sense to implement a robot over a human, especially when they're not flexible enough to really do the job effectively before some of this newer technology. And then speaking of, of the you know, financing models, uh, Bruce, there's honestly, there's new approaches to trying to make industrial automation more accessible. Right, including robotics as a service. And can you talk for a moment to that in terms of um, helping to make automation of all kinds, but in this case, industrial automation more accessible? That's a great that's a great topic, you know, especially as it relates to the seasonal nature of, of a lot of the warehousing and distribution that we see here. Uh, you know, the uh, 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 peak to average ratios of, of distribution can be can be substantial, especially in the in, in the retail space. So when you have a when you create an automation environment, you're effectively creating a funnel. That robot can only grasp so many pieces. That conveyor can can only go so fast. So uh, so you create a nice base layer for how to get work done. But what do you do to uh, to add additional productivity required during at, at the times that that, that that productivity is most needed when those retailers, you know, need to get their the product on their shelves for Black Friday uh, through the season. And I think that uh, that what we're seeing now is is uh, things like collaborative robots. Of course, you mentioned robots as a service, and that's a very important model that's being that's being brought in. You know, being able to use operational expense versus capital expense in order to uh, in, in order to, to to leverage automation, so so there's new cost models like that, new new finance models, I guess you'd say. But uh, but we're seeing things like uh, like well, just the increased throughput available with with robotics, uh, and as as the uh, 
the control systems and the sensor systems uh, as, as, as they get more powerful and more affordable, we can, we can do different things with the robots. And then, and then uh, of course, we haven't talked about collaborative robots at all. You know, those the robots that aren't collaborative that have to work in a, in, in a safe space where, where people can't, uh, can't be near them. That's one of the things that we do as a company more than anything. And the thing we're known for the most is safety. And, uh, but not only is safety keeping people away from robots, but, uh, but we have different types of robots now that can actually collaborate with, with humans. So if that, uh, if that robot is sitting there picking product and throwing it into a tote, uh, there's there's certain circumstances where I might be able to step in beside that robot and and work alongside it in order to make it more efficient and me more efficient. So so there's there's several different uh, you know emerging applications like that that we can use in order to uh, in order to make sure those peak volumes are met. Yeah, and it's important. I think you touched on this briefly. Uh, the the robots as a service and that that model allows you to lease robots essentially and that's full robot systems where you might be able to just roll them in to a specific application and just you know plop it down and off it goes kind of thing and it's important to mention um a big difference between a traditional robot arm and a cobot arm not in addition to safety is actually weight a cobot arm is lightweight and when i say that i literally can take the biggest cobot arm I know and throw it on my shoulder and walk out the door. Um, it's not it's not a heavy robot whatsoever, which allows you to do things like like just let's move it over here, let's move it over there, let's bring it on a truck over here, and let's you know put it in this facility versus a traditional robot. Well, those things could weigh you know hundreds of pounds, and they require um, you know a a, a significant amount of energy, possibly at higher voltages, stuff like that. Not all of them require that, but the smaller ones, say, might be able to handle some, some lower uh, requirements, but the smaller ones also might not be able to do what you're trying to do, whereas a cobot has the reach. Uh, so it is important to recognize that cobots, in addition to that safety piece, have also introduced a lightweight model, which is now able to do things like uh, system as a service. So. Person, Nick, this has been a really great conversation, and I appreciate your time. And I'd like to thank Second again for uh, sponsoring this podcast. And I look forward to continuing this conversation again. Thank you, guys. Yeah, great conversation. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, thank you. Eugene.